Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. We're going to be looking today at Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 30. As always, it's going to be up here on the screen. It's also in the booklet. I encourage you to follow along in your Bible. Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 20. Hear now the word of the living, sovereign God. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom's divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. One of my favorite characters in church history is St. Patrick. St. Patrick, who many of us know as the guy that, you know, we've heard little legends. He drove all the snakes out of Ireland. He's an excuse for many people to wear green once a year and for some people to drink way too much alcohol on that day because they have no understanding of who St. Patrick was. If I were to even ask people who's the most famous Irishman ever, most people would say St. Patrick. And the problem with that is St. Patrick is not Irish. So he could not possibly be that. St. Patrick was actually born in 389 in England. And his father was a deacon in the church. His grandfather was actually a cleric in the church. When Patrick was young, he did not really embrace the faith. He just kind of lived on the edge of the church, wasn't really paying a whole lot of attention to it. And then when Patrick was 16 years old, raiders came from Ireland, raided the town, destroyed a bunch of stuff, and they kidnapped Patrick and some others and carried them back to Ireland. So Patrick went to Ireland as a slave. 
and he remained a slave for a number of years. He was eventually made a shepherd and was sent out with, with flocks, which meant he was out on his own in very lonely, deserted places. And during this time, Patrick had come to true faith. The things he had heard, never paid attention to, he now realized it really makes a difference. I need to be serious about knowing who Jesus is. While he was out on one of these lonely times with the sheep, he had a vision and he heard a voice. And in essence, the Lord appeared to Patrick and he told him, Patrick, arise, go to the coast. Your ship awaits you to take you to freedom. Now, that would seem to be simple, except for the coast was 200 miles away. So Patrick, a runaway slave, had to flee 200 miles. He got down there. I won't give you all the details right now, but when he got there, the ship initially didn't want to take him because they had reason to suspect he was a runaway slave. But the, the Lord heard some of Patrick's prayers, did some miraculous things, and so the ship agreed to take him away. He goes back to England. He eventually becomes a monk. And in, as we've been looking in Mark's gospel, the idea of being with Jesus, that's what Patrick was doing. He was being with Jesus. And one of the days in doing that, he had another vision. And the Lord said, Patrick, I want you to go back to Ireland. And Patrick said, get thee behind me. No, we don't know exactly what Patrick said, but I'm sure he probably did the old, uh, I'm sorry, Lord, I thought you just said go back to the place where I'm a fugitive slave. Uh, they'll kill me if I go back there. But the Lord told Patrick to go back. And he went back, and Patrick spent 30 years in Ireland. And the entire time he was opposed by Druids, who were basically the warlocks and witches of uh, the Irish people. They hated Patrick. They were pronouncing incantations and curses upon him constantly. And Patrick's life was constantly in danger. He was engaged in great spiritual warfare. Today, when we conclude the meeting, I'm going to do a benediction that is actually what's known as St. Patrick's Breastplate. It's probably not written by Patrick, but it captures the spirit of St. Patrick because it's a prayer of spiritual warfare. And the amazing thing is in those 30 years, people have summarized, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but when Patrick landed on Irish shores, no one was a Christian. When Patrick died 30 years later, everyone was a Christian. He completely transformed the place, but it was in the face of massive spiritual warfare. That's how Ireland became transformed by the gospel. And so today we're going to be looking at a text where we see spiritual warfare happening between Jesus and Satan and various responses that people have. Now, as we dive into the text, in verse 20, we see what's become a very familiar refrain in Mark's gospel by this point, which is that Jesus enters a house and again a crowd gathers. I mean, we've seen when Jesus is in town, the crowds come. When Jesus goes outside the town, the crowds come. When he goes down by the lake, the crowds come. Everywhere he goes, the crowds are thronging around Jesus. The crowd and its needs are are unending. You remember last week we had seen where Jesus had kind of went outside by the lake to try and get away. And then he had to go to a mountainside to call the 12 disciples to him to try and get away. Well, he's back in town and the crowds are there. <clears throat> and Mark even records this time that the crowd and its needs are so great that Jesus and the disciples can't even get a break to eat. 
Okay, so you got a picture. They, they are really pressing in on Jesus. He can't even eat. So we've heard in Mark's gospel that he keeps periodically trying to get away from the crowds. He keeps trying to go off because he needs time to commune with God. He's trying to get the disciples to have time alone with him, but there's this constant going back to the crowd. But what many people are seeing and hearing is not the quiet times alone. All they hear and know about is the frenetic activity. One of those groups of people is Jesus' family. They're back in Nazareth. They're not in Capernaum where this is happening. But they hear what's going on, and all they're hearing is it's so crazy around Jesus, he can't even get time to eat. Everybody's around him, and they're probably hearing that there's opposition. So one of the stranger verses in the New Testament we read, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said, he's out of his mind. They're not happy. They're not promoting the thing of Jesus. They're not saying, this is awesome. We're going to become famous because Jesus is famous. They literally look and say, something's gone wrong. Jesus is not in his right mind. And they set out from Nazareth because they're going to go take charge of him. They're going to grab him. They're going to take him back home. Uh, to do this. They've probably also heard of the growing hostility, and they realize that if he gets on the wrong side of certain people, it could be big trouble. So they're setting out to go get him. Now, we're going to come back to this because we're going to see Mark. Mark does this several times in the gospel. He brings up and lets us know about the family, and then he's going to shift to another story, and he's going to come back to the family next week, and we're going to talk to that. But I do just quickly want to point out to us you know, in Mark's gospel, Mark is trying to get us to ask this question, who is Jesus? And at this point, we understand even his family can't answer that question rightly. The only people who've answered it rightly so far in the gospel are who? Demons. They're the only ones who figured out who Jesus is. They know who he is. The second they see him, they got no question who he is, okay? But even Jesus's family does not understand at this point. In fact, they think that he's mentally unstable and they're actually opposing his mission. Make no mistake, they're going there to stop him from doing what he's doing. Let that sink in for a moment, okay? And we read later in John's gospel, his brothers are the same way. Now, the funny thing is, his brother James becomes one of the great leaders in the early church. We know he is converted later, but at this point, they're not doing it. And this is a quick reminder that the flesh does not determine our destiny nor our understanding of the things of God. The flesh counts for nothing, okay? And let me school you. The Greek word behind that means, David, what's the Greek word for nothing mean? Nothing, nothing. There's nothing special about it. It means the flesh counts for nothing. It will not avail before God. God's family is determined by the new birth, by the Spirit, not by your physical lineage. See, that's one of the problems. St. Patrick, hey, dad's a deacon, granddad's a cleric, everything's okay. Well, not really. No. Do, do you know God, Patrick? Answer, no. I grew up hearing the gospel, but I've never responded to the gospel. Jesus' family has grown up with God in the house and didn't get it. They didn't under 
stand. We'll come back again next week and look more at that. So we're already getting a note that the family is not getting it. But there's even a worse group. And that is in verse 22, we read, the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said. Now, first off note here, we've seen Jesus every time in Mark's gospel, I've mentioned this several times, the scribes is the word, the NIV translates it as teachers of the law. These are the experts. These are the guys who study the scriptures day after day, hour after hour. They are given over to this, and with the exception of one time in Mark's gospel, every time they're mentioned, they are opposing Jesus. They have studied the scripture and understood nothing because when the Messiah comes, they don't recognize who he is. But here's the amazing thing. This is not just scribes. He's had problems with the scribes there in Capernaum and in Nazareth. Now his fame is spreading. Remember we saw last week people were coming from all over to hear Jesus. Word is spreading. So Jerusalem has sent down the scribes to come, and they're supposed to investigate what Jesus is doing. And notice, immediately we're told, they say he's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So these are the greatest religious scholars of Israel. The greatest ones are not going to be in Capernaum or Nazareth, they're going to be in Jerusalem. So these are the big guys. These are the guys who have spent their entire life, they are the cream of the crop in Israel for studying the Scripture, and they come down, and what they observe is Jesus is driving out demons. And Mark has already told us earlier, this has amazed the people because they've watched the scribes teach the Word of God, and they say Jesus teaches very differently than these guys do. And they've also watched and said, and there's an authority here. See, other people drove out demons, and we even see accounts of this in the New Testament. But they're only sometimes successful, many times not. And even when they are successful, it is this convoluted thing of all of these incantations and ways of doing things. None of this is happening with Jesus. The demons fall down. He commands them to shut up. He kicks them out of the person. Person rises up healed. It's very, very different. So these religious authorities who are trained, who've studied the scripture, who know that this is a, a promise regarding Messiah, in all of their wisdom, they watch a man who does all this, and what's their takeaway? Got to be filled with Satan. That's what they get out of it. He's got to be filled with Satan. So, because, see, they can't deny what he's done. That's not, that's not there. They recognize he's doing all these things, but they're saying he's doing it by Satan, in essence. It actually uses a, a, a name, Beelzebul. Some of the translations have Beelzebul instead of Beelzebub, and that's, that's because that's actually what was there originally in the Greek, and it's the only place that we have it is in the Gospels. It's not a phrase that we read about outside. There is Beelzebub, which is very similar outside the Gospels, but it seems like this was a term that was kind of used in the local area. But what we know is it's a high-ranking demon or even Satan himself. The phrase Beelzebub, which is normally used and is used in other places in the gospel, actually means Lord of the Flies. That's what, it's related back to Baal, actually, the, the God that Israel had struggled with in the Old Testament. And he is the prince of the demonic forces. So picture this. The scribes cannot deny the power they see working in and through Jesus. He is 
healing the sick. He is doing miracles. He is driving out demons. They can't deny that. So what they say is, it must be Satan at work in him. Now what's interesting is, this is not the charge they're going to bring up at the trial of Jesus later. But even a couple of centuries later, this was still the, the charge against Jesus that was current among Jews spread throughout the empire. I've put a couple of quotes up here. Uh, th these are quotes from uh, in the second century. So this is well over a hundred years later. The quotes, Yeshu of Nazareth was hanged on the day of preparation for the Passover because he practiced sorcery and led the people astray. It's basically a warlock or a witch. Uh, another version there says, And a master has said, Yeshu the Nazarene practiced magic and led Israel astray. And we have church fathers who are still answering this charge uh, in the second century. And so it's an amazing thing to recognize this idea hung. What did not hang, notice what's not there is, well, they said Jesus did these miracles, but he didn't really do them. Now, they knew he had done the miracles. There were too many witnesses. He had done the miracles. The only answer they took away is, well, we don't believe he's from God, so he must be doing them by Satan. And so this is a reminder to us of the limited power of miraculous signs. See, we, we always, you know, if, if the Lord would just do something miraculous, this person would believe. No, they wouldn't. You remember Jesus himself one time in the parable where, where the rich man said, Lord, send me back because then it'll tell my brothers so that they won't end up where I'm at. And Jesus said, if they don't believe the books of Moses, they won't believe if someone rises from the dead. We think the miraculous is going to open their eyes. But see, these great scribes, who've spent their whole life studying, see the miracles. And it's not just generic miracles. It's miracles that say, this is the Messiah. This is the one you've been waiting for. This is the one who you pray for. This is the one who you've been fasting for. It's him. It's him. It's him. And they say, it's Satan. That's literally what is going on here. And so just as physical lineage doesn't guarantee spiritual openness, nor does seeing the miraculous. Friends, only the Spirit of God can open the eyes. Only the Spirit of God can set us free. There are people today who observe God at work around them, and if our heart is hard, we will find a way to twist and deny everything. And that's exactly what's going on here. So what we see at this point is the crowds are continuing to grow. They're flocking to Jesus, but the opposition... Oddly enough, even from his family, but especially from the religious authorities from Jerusalem, is continuing to grow as well. But what Jesus wants to focus on here is the fact that kingdoms are in conflict. So he hears what the scribes are saying, and so he calls them, and he answers them, Mark tells us, with a parable. He gives a story, and he says, how can Satan drive out Satan? He's trying to get him to think. Guys, think about what you're saying here. So you're saying Satan 
is driving out his own henchmen. So he's sent them to possess these people and to destroy these people, and now you're saying he's delivering the very people he was trying to destroy. Does that make any sense? And Jesus goes on, and he says, look, think about it. If a kingdom starts fighting against itself, what's going to happen to that kingdom? Right? We're all watching a war right now with Russia and Ukraine, right? What if Ukraine tomorrow started turning on itself and the Ukrainian forces started fighting with each other? What would be the outcome of the war? It'd be over. You, you can't fight yourself while you're supposed to be fighting someone else. And Jesus says, so if Satan's fighting himself, then his end has come. A house that is divided against itself is going to fall. And so if Satan is the one who's working through me to drive out satanic forces, it's the end of his own kingdom. And in fact, he says, if this is uh, happening, this is down in verse 26, he said, if Satan's doing this, then his power is gone. His kingdom is over. Everything is already ended for Satan. And in essence, what Jesus is saying is, but look around the crowds. Do you still see people who are being harassed by demons? Do you still see people who are possessed? Do you still see people who are sick? Then clearly Satan's kingdom has not completely fallen yet. It's not completely over, so your answer doesn't make any sense. So what is happening? Well, Jesus goes on and explains the reality, and this should be very encouraging for you and me. Mark 3, 27 is a very encouraging verse. Jesus says, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. Now, notice what he's doing. He's saying, since it can't be Satan doing this, there's got to be somebody who's stronger than Satan. If Satan's house is getting plundered, which is what you all are observing, that means somebody stronger has met Satan, smacked him down, and is busy taking all this stuff away right now. That's the answer that you should have taken away from this. Now, remember back at the beginning of Mark's gospel, one of the first things we see is John the Baptist comes, and people are asking John the Baptist, are you the one? And John's answer is, no, one's coming after me, and he is stronger. He's stronger. He's greater. And the actual word is the same word as here. He's, he's stronger than I am. I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. Well, what we're learning here is, yes, he is stronger than John the Baptist, but he's not only stronger than John the Baptist, he's actually stronger than Satan himself. And remember, right after John says that, Jesus is baptized and he goes into the wilderness and Satan is there tempting him. And Mark gave us a, just a very brief statement there and said that he was tempted for many days. Jesus resisted the temptations and then angels came and ministered. What we're actually learning here is, oh, they met and they had battle and Jesus not only resisted Satan, he bound him up. And what he's saying is, and I've been plundering his house ever since then. What you all are watching right now is nothing other than the plundering of the house and the kingdom of Satan. And this had actually been 
prophesied. Satan was a strong man who bound people in sin, in demonic possession, in disease and death. But Jesus had come to bind him, destroy his work, and set the captives free. You remember his very first sermon. I've come to proclaim freedom for the captives. Okay, from Isaiah. Well, here's another passage in Isaiah. In Isaiah 49, can plunder be taken from warriors or captives rescued from the fierce? Who can take them from some strong guy? Well, but this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. The guys who have read this all their life are watching it happen in front of them. Children of Israel who are bound by Satan, who, who are harassed, who are demonized, who are struggling, are being set free right in front of their eyes in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And make no mistake, this is so central to what's going on. This is actually Peter's message. There are many scholars who note when you look at Peter's preaching in Cornelius's house, and actually what was a really terrible sermon because Peter still did not get that Gentiles were okay, very brief sermon, but it actually is a summary of Mark's gospel. And what he says, here's the heart of what Peter preaches, you know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. This is exactly what we've read in three chapters of Mark's gospel so far. It starts with John doing his baptism. Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit, and he's going around and he's plundering Satan's house, setting the oppressed free. He's the stronger one who comes after John. He's anointed with the Spirit. He delivers those under Satan's power. And so the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan are in an inevitable conflict. That's what's going on here. When Jesus has come and he's invaded into Satan's kingdom, there is inevitable conflict. But the good news is Jesus has already bound Satan and guaranteed victory for the people of God. The fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy has come. And again, remember, he's speaking to people who, as it were, have multiple PhDs in Bible theology, philosophy, understanding. It's right there. All the pages of Scripture are coming true. Everything they have cried out for, everything they have been teaching was going to happen is happening right in front of their eyes. And what's their response? Yeah, well, he, he's anointed. He's anointed with Satan. That's their response. And so Jesus gives this grave warning to these authorities in verses 28 to 30. And he says, I tell you the truth. It's a very interesting phrase. It's actually, the Greek is amen, amen. Can anybody guess what the Greek word amen means? Amen. You guys are all scholars, right? 
It's amen, amen. The funny thing is, Jesus is the only person who ever used it. We don't have any records outside of the Gospels of anybody else ever saying this. Now, please hear me. The, the, the word amen, going back to Hebrew, means this is true. That's why the NIV translated, I tell you the truth. It means this is true. Please hear this. When the one who is the truth speaks and says, truth, truth, you better pay attention. You better pay attention. Truth, truth, all sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. Now first, before we go to the one, because everybody gets worried about the next verse, is that good news? That is such good news. Brothers and sisters, whatever you have struggled with, whatever your sin, however you have fallen short, they can all be forgiven because of what Christ has done. But he warns these leaders that whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. And then Mark adds, he said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. So we need not question and worry what he means by that phrase. Jesus is warning the scribes regarding their statements. They are in danger of blasphemy because they should know better than to utter what they're doing. They are equating the Holy Spirit with Satan. Remember the word Messiah or Christ, what does it actually mean? anointed one. And he's anointed with who? The Holy Spirit. But they're proclaiming he's anointed with Satan. So they are equating the Holy Spirit with Satan. And so Jesus here utters and says, blaspheming the Spirit is an eternal sin. Now I'm only going to deal with this briefly because I'm actually going to, this is going to be after hours for this week. So if you want to know more about it, you can tune in on Tuesday and after I'll come out, I'll talk more about blasphemy of the Spirit and eternal sin. But a couple of things in case you worry, because a lot of believers struggle and worry about this. Number one, this is unique. It's never said anywhere else. This is not a topic that Jesus brought up all the time. It is very unique. It is very specific to this thing. And it's being spoken to religious authorities, not everyday Jews and Gentiles. If anybody in this room is in danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, who is it? It's this dummy standing in front of you because I should know better because my training and my vocation is in the Word of God. That's exactly who was there. Jesus is speaking it. See, it's not the crowds. It's not the multitudes. It's not even his family coming and saying, we think you're out of your mind and we're stopping you. They're not getting this. It's the religious authorities who knew better. They knew better than what they were doing. It is referring to the willful, settled rejection of the Spirit's work through Jesus, hating it so much that one would say it's the work of Satan, not the work of God. That's what Jesus is dealing with here. And so, just real briefly, People who worry that they might have done this haven't done this because if you had done it, you wouldn't care that you had done it. Okay? It's just the way it is, all right? I'm going to talk more about it in after hours and what it means, 
but, but friends, if your conscience harangues you over this, that is the enemy. Don't listen to that. That's not what Jesus is talking about. This is not that I thought something that was incorrect or, or I one point I opposed something and then I later found out it really was. This is not talking about that. Okay? It's a very specific thing for those religious leaders. If you want to hear more, I encourage you to jump into After Hours. What I want us to take the rest of our time doing, and the reason I'm not taking more time, is to really deal with the heart of what this text is about. And it is recognizing the nature of who Jesus is and the nature of spiritual warfare. And the first thing is I want you to see, do you you recognize the polarizing nature of Jesus Christ? See, sometimes we think, oh, if people could just see Jesus, you know, he he was so meek and mild and everybody would love him. Have you you read the Gospels? Because it's not that way. The crowds loved him. They are flocking to him. The scribes despise him. They hate him with a perfect hatred. Okay? That is the way it is. And this is because Jesus has invaded Satan's kingdom and there is no neutrality. There is no spiritual Switzerland. The war's raging around, you know, and somehow it's pretty amazing that the whole world was at war from 1939 to 1945 except for Switzerland, right there in the middle of it all, right? We all convince ourselves we can find spiritual Switzerland. You can't. There is no spiritual Switzerland. You are either for Christ or you are against Christ. And this is not because I would like it to be that way. It's because it's actually the way Jesus has set it up to be. Many people today want to deny Christ's deity. They want to deny his atoning work. They want to say, I'm not too sure that he really did all those miraculous things. But I think he's an amazing moral teacher. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. It makes no sense whatsoever. I'm going to put up a quote I've read before. This is from C.S. Lewis, uh, but it's so important to understand this. He's talking about Jesus' claims to deity, okay, which he's really doing here in this text. He's letting the scribes know, you should know who I am. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. And you claiming I'm something else, you are actually blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Here's what Lewis wrote. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. See, Jesus has come, and he's kind of And amazingly to me, there are people who still even want to debate with what Lewis has said, and every time I read their debating over it, I'm like, you sound like a dummy. You're, you're trying to get around the binary choice that Jesus Christ has left us. He intends for us to understand. So the key question in Mark is, who is this Jesus? 
And we need to understand there is no neutrality in this. The war of the ages rages about us, and we are either loyal to Satan or we're loyal to God. There is no third kingdom. And it's imperative, and I urge you to think through this. See, Patrick grew up in the church. He heard all of this. It had all been there, and he thought he was living in spiritual Switzerland until he literally got carried away as a slave. But the reality was, that's not when the warfare started around Patrick. How long had the warfare been going on around Patrick? His entire life. There had never been a second in his life that the warfare wasn't raging. He was just ignoring it. Okay? It was only when it finally came crashing down that he awakened to it. So everybody here, I, I want to urge you, you're, you're, the war is raging around you and me. It is here. The question is, am I recognizing it, and which side am I on? Th there is no neutrality in this. Have you paid attention to who Jesus Christ is? And again, it's not up to your family. Jesus' own family didn't get it. It's not up to, well, I was raised in the church and synagogue. So was Jesus' family. These scribes did it every day. Patrick had heard it his whole life. Have I come into a living relationship with Jesus Christ? That's what this is about. Second question, and this is for those who really understand this and are believers. Do I understand the reality of spiritual warfare? The good news is, if you're on Team Jesus, and I pledge loyalty to Jesus, all my sins are forgiven. I am taken out of Satan's kingdom and brought into the kingdom of God. I receive the blessings of being a child of God. My eternal state is secure. Is all that good news? The bad news is Satan and every demon of hell are going to be out to destroy you after that. That is the way it is, okay? That is the way that it works. So those who pledge loyalty to Jesus are going to be opposed by Satan and demonic forces. And just as you read through the Gospels, how often do we see this warfare going on in the Gospels? That's what's amazing. I mean, you, you can't read a page of the Gospels. You can barely read a paragraph without seeing the reality of the spiritual warfare. Now, here's what's important. Because we're trained so well by Hollywood, we think that spiritual warfare means the exorcism, the exorcist, you know, or the exorcism of Emily Rose. And I love the movie, The Exorcism of Emily Rose. That's not what spiritual warfare looks like. That's extremely rare that spiritual warfare looks that way. In fact, if you want a better account of what it is, I just reread this weekend the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. It's much, much more. It's when I get irritated with someone and I start hearing a little voice in my head that says, cut that person off at the knees. That's spiritual warfare right there. No, no heads twisting, it gets cold in the room, none of that. Satan's alive and active and warring at that moment. Satan and his demons are out to harass, deceive, seduce, and destroy disciples of Jesus, and to keep those who are not disciples of Jesus yet away from the faith. They are doing everything they can to do this. Now, I want you to please hear me in this, and it was pretty interesting 
Um, I actually, in studying this text this week, one of the things, I actually got a text from someone that was referring to the fact that they have a neighbor who's a practicing witch and they felt like a demon was speaking through the neighbor to them. And I was like, this is like a weird time, Lord, for this just to randomly come up. It's not even somebody that's in our congregation. Um, and one of the things we do when we think about this is sometimes believers get fearful. And we start thinking, can I just sit this one out? I, I don't want to be engaged in the spiritual warfare. The answer is you cannot. But I want to tell you, here's the good news. You do not need to be fearful. Satan is bound. Jesus Christ is in control. He is sovereign. He is watching over us. And so we need not fear the warfare. We have everything we need for, first off, defensive warfare. And we begin spiritual warfare defensively in ourselves, putting to death evil desires and submitting to the Spirit's work in our life. And I want to encourage you, again, we're in, we're in Lent right now. So, you know, uh, this past Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. It's a great time to set aside and say, Lord, I want you to to work and to root out sin in my life. On Ash Wednesday, the a group of pastors were here and we were praying out front. We went through Psalm 139 and we were just praying, Lord, search me and know me. It's a great psalm that says, Lord, I want you to uncover any way in me that's not right, Lord. Uncover it, expose it, bring it out. It was great. A group of pastors sitting right here in our lobby were confessing sins with one another and praying for each other. Okay, that's what we want to do. And that is spiritual warfare. It's defensive. It is that Satan is attacking me. And so the question is, am I engaged in defensive spiritual warfare? Recognizing the enemy's attacks in temptation, in deception, in harassment. He is out to do all of those things to you and me. He is out to tempt us. He is out to deceive us. He is out to harass us. Do I recognize it? Am I aware? But even more than that, I want to, some of this may be because I'm a Marine. I don't like defensive warfare. I'm not here to stop his blows. I'm here to punch him in the mouth. Okay? This is about us going on attack. Remember, Jesus said, I'm calling the disciples to be with me and then to do what? Go back into the crowd and to have authority over demonic forces. That's what we just looked at last week. This isn't, oh, spiritual warfare is coming. I'm going to hide in the corner. No. Get on the offensive. Satan is trying to bind up people in your family. He is trying to bind up your neighbors. He is trying to deceive and to harass and to do that. And God has you and me on mission to say, no, not going to happen. And for us to be engaged in doing that, as he's attempting to deceive and enslave them, to keep them from Christ, to try and deceive our culture at large, uh, the enemy is trying to do that, but God is sending us back into the crowd. That's why we are here. This is not our holy little huddle. This is us being encouraged, strengthened, and equipped every week to go back out and to be engaged and involved in doing this. We are to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. 
The kingdom of God has come. And this is not a call for a few specialists out there. It's the call of every believer for us to recognize and see. So am I engaging in spiritual warfare through prayer? That when I see the enemy doing something in somebody's life, whether it's my neighbor or my child or my spouse or a coworker, am I engaged in spiritual warfare saying, no, I see what the enemy is attempting to do here. Lord, I am asking you, bind his work and release the power of the Holy Spirit in that life. That is not a call for a few specialists. That is something for every single believer. Am I engaged in fasting? This is part of what fasting is about. Okay, Jesus, you remember at one point said, the disciples were like, why couldn't we cast it out? Well, this kind comes out only by prayer and fasting. Am I engaged and involved in, uh, in doing that, in sharing the gospel, in standing for truth? All of this is there. Um, and it's part of us doing it. I'm not going to go into the specifics. We've actually done a whole series uh, a number of years ago on spiritual warfare. You can look that up and talk about all the different aspects. But I want to encourage you and me that, look, as we are proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and this is becoming more apparent uh, day by day, the fact is we're going to encounter harassment, we're going to encounter resistance. We're going to encounter slander. And we may encounter potentially worse. Okay? I'll guarantee you St. Patrick would be really happy if all that he happened was somebody put something on Facebook really nasty about them. That was the least of his concerns. He, he had druids calling on the power of Satan to end his life. Kings who, who had armies that could have come and chased him down. That is what's going on. We have to see that, but we have to remember, I do remind us this for spiritual warfare, who is our enemy? Who is not my enemy? The people who may be being nasty, who may be saying things that are horrible. Now, I know y'all probably don't have this problem, but sometimes I want to lash back at that person right? That, that's not what spiritual warfare is about. Jesus never gets upset with the people. How are you so dumb to let yourself get demonized? See, he never does that in the Gospels. He's arrayed against Satan. Brothers and sisters, that's what we are called to do. I want to encourage you, let's engage in warfare for our king. And again, I, I want to encourage you, when I was talking with the person who was struggling with that, they were thinking very defensively. How do I keep this, this demonic thing near me from influencing my family? And by the end of the conversation, they were saying, okay, this is, I'm supposed to be on warfare against this. I'm supposed to be attacking this. Yes, that's what we do because Christ is victorious. Okay? Now, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And what we're going to begin with is, uh, we're going to begin with a corporate reading of Psalm 23 which is pretty interesting because I had not read the lyrics to the new worship song we learned this morning, which was built around Psalm 23, a big part of it. So I didn't know. <laughs> Sorry, Tom, I didn't get to it this week. So, But it was pretty interesting as we were singing it. I was like, this is what we're going to be doing at the Lord's table. So we're going to stand together and we're going to read Psalm 23. Because I want to remind you, in this psalm, we are learning, there's basically almost three metaphors in the psalm. Jesus is our shepherd. 
Jesus is the warrior who has conquered for us, and Jesus is the king who invites us to his table. And so let's read this as a prayer and as our confession of faith to the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. You may be seated. I want to encourage you, as we're going to be coming to the Lord's table, we will say to our guests and visitors, you do not have to be a member of our congregation to participate with us. You just have to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That means, I understand, the Lord is my shepherd. I know that I'm in relationship with him not because I grew up in a Christian family. That doesn't make me a Christian. Uh, Not because I've studied the Bible or heard about it all my life. Because I have personally put my faith in Jesus Christ. Because I have personally responded and said, you are my shepherd and I am your sheep. If you believe that, you are welcome to join with us today. And as we do, I want to encourage you to receive encouragement from our shepherd warrior king. Brothers and sisters, he is all you need. Whatever you are facing, whatever the enemy's designs in your life, I want us to be encouraged and to receive. Right now, the enemy may be harassing you and doing things, you are going to sit in the presence of your enemies and you're going to feast at the table of your king because his protection is around you and me. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you that the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to give just a moment for the the Lord to speak to us. If there's any area where you feel like there's been spiritual warfare in your life, any area where you're asking the Lord to minister to you, take that before him right now and let's receive from our Lord. Lord, you are the good shepherd who cares for your sheep. As the good shepherd, you laid down your life us. You sacrificed yourself that we might be saved from the wolf and death. So we give you thanks 
that you have done this for us and that because of your sacrifice, we are safe and secure now and forever. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord, by your blood, you have purchased men and women from every nation on earth. And we are among those whom you have rescued. And with all the people of God, we give you thanks for the great salvation we share. Through your blood, you have made and sealed the covenant so that we are safe and secure as the people of God now and forevermore. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. If you can stand with me. Yes. Yeah, you, you said? Yes, sure. Um, let me get the mic. Scripture tells us that we overcome the evil one by the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony. So I want to tell you very briefly something that happened to me and what God spoke to me through it. Some years ago, I was in uh, Central America on a foreign missions trip, and I went to bed one night, and as I was laying there trying to fall asleep, a heavy oppression and fear came over me. And for the next, probably about 10 in the evening till about 3 in the morning, I lay in my bed, uh, scared that some kind of attack was going to come, knowing that I was under the protection of the Lord, but only being able to ward off this fear and dread that I felt through prayer and recitation of scripture and singing. Psalm 23 being one of the passages that I just kept coming back to over and over again. I had never experienced something like this before. I know God's in charge. I was there on this trip to proclaim the gospel, to save souls. And there's no question in my mind that Satan had been defeated. And yet, as I lay there in my bed, I was terrified. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, I fell asleep. And at 6 o'clock in the morning, I woke up. And as we sat preparing for the day, a dear sister of mine said, the Lord woke me up at 3 o'clock and told me to start praying. And I said to my sister, thank you, because I think that's the reason I was able to fall asleep. That morning as we were praying, there was some, some testimony going on about the experiences of people who were going door to door in the various villages. And as we were praying for the villages, I felt the Lord say, Jeremy, there's a witch doctor that's responsible for the, for the uh, resistance going on. And I said, Lord, that's, that's kind of out there. <laughs> and he said, so I said, guys, I don't know about this, but this is just a sense I have. I feel like maybe there's a witch doctor. And then God says, by the way, his name's Martin. And I said, Lord, I'm in Nicaragua. There's no Martin here in Nicaragua. What are you talking about? He said, I'm telling you. And I said, guys, I think his name is Martin. We found out later that day as we were going door to door. Oh, yeah, Martin lives right there. He's a witch doctor that goes around here and has control over this area. As we came back that night and we were discussing what had happened that day, as I was writing in my journal later that night, I said, Lord, why did this happen? Why didn't you give this to Barb, who I know you wake up on a regular basis so that she may pray? Why didn't you give it to her? And he says to me this. He says, Jeremy, because I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And either you're going to be ready or you're not. Now, I don't know 
whether or not it was God putting his hand on me that night as I lay there in fear, whether this was a holy terror or whether this was the Lord allowing me to experience the oppression that was going on so that I would turn to him as we just did with Psalm 23. What I do know is this. When Barb woke up and started praying, her prayers and God's hand covered me. And he used the means that he was going to need. Now, I say that because we've got Maryland Praise coming up. And we've got this message here. And I say that not to talk about what I experienced, but to say this. God's going to do what he's going to do. He's called us to be aware and to be ready. And we don't know who it is that we're covering for. When we stand faithfully, simply being woken up in the morning and starting to pray. Praise the Lord. Amen. If, if you can stand, we're going to pray, and um, I encourage you to enter in the spirit of this prayer and receive from the Lord, and then we're going to conclude as I speak part of St. Patrick's breastplate over us for us to go out in our warfare. Lord, how great is the victory you have won for us. You have defeated Satan and death and given the fruits of your victory to us. Though Satan may rage and roar, though demons may tempt and taunt, our life is secure, hid with Christ and God our Father. So great is this victory that today we have sat and feasted in the presence of our enemies, anointed with the Spirit, overflowing with blessings from your hand. So Lord, we ask right now that you would fill us anew with the Spirit of God. Fill us to overflowing. Equip us against Satan and his host. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the battle this week. Give us courage in knowing that the victory is already won and that you have given us authority over the powers of hell. Father, as we are seeing the, the battle, even as, as Jeremy just described, Lord God, as we go forth and we do that, I pray, hear our prayers. Lord, use our labors so that others might be set free and enjoy the great blessings of the children of God. Lord, we ask all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus, our great shepherd, warrior, king. And God's people say, amen. Now, brothers and sisters, receive the blessing of God. May Christ be your shield this day and this week. Christ before you, Christ behind you, Christ beneath you, Christ above you, Christ on your right, Christ on your left. May Christ be with you, Christ be in you alone and in multitude, near and afar, for all you face and for all your life, that you may live in the protection and the power of his blessing. You are blessed. Go forth and be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.